The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. Take your copy of God's Word, please, and turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, we're only going to read one verse uh, for our text this morning. We're preaching all through February on the home. We preached on the, the home and the problems surrounding the home and the need for home revival last Sunday. Today we're going to look at the role of the father in the home or the role of the man. You may be a, a man and not be a father. Uh, you say, well, I'm not married. Well, you might get married or you know someone who is married or maybe you have kids that are married and you might want to share this with them. But when you find Ephesians 6, 4, would you join me in standing, please, as we show our respect for the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of the living God. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. You know, I want you to know if if you are a man here today and if you are a a husband and a father, uh, this is a command from the Lord through the apostle Paul. And uh, he gives us, first of all, a negative thing. He says, don't stir up anger in your children. Uh, He says, don't do that. Uh, Whatever you do, don't cause your children just to be, don't frustrate your children really would be a good way to translate that. Uh, Don't do anything that will make your children not realize that you love them. Don't stir up anger in your children. But then here are two commands but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. You say, well, a preacher, I'm not stirring up anger in my children. I'm doing pretty good. No, you're not, because you've missed two-thirds of this verse if that's all you're doing. And now, don't stir up anger. Don't frustrate your children. You know, one of the things we need, we need to understand our children. You know, I can say that now. I'm 65 years old, soon be 66 years old. And uh, I was much younger, of course, when we had children. And uh, I I was foolish in a lot of ways then. And uh, my children trained me in a lot of things. Uh, But it really shouldn't be that way. Uh, We ought to understand our children, understand. And by the way, they're not all the same. You know, we have some families in our church that have five or six or seven kids. Maybe some that have more than that. And uh, I love those kids. I, I get to watch them. I get to watch them grow up and come through all the activities, through uh, preschool activities and then the children's activities and the youth activities. Every child is different. No two children are exactly alike. Even identical twins are not exactly alike. And we need to understand that. We as fathers need to, first of all, understand our children. If we don't understand our children, we certainly will frustrate them. But then the Bible also says... We're not to, to cause anger in them, but we are to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, the way God wants us to do that is to be a faithful father. Notice Dennis Rainey says, nothing comes to the man that is passive except failure. In my 43 years of pastoral ministry, the singular most trouble I've ever seen in homes and most prevalent problem is the passive man. Men just sit there and we like to be the strong, silent type. And we come in from work and our wife says, how was work today? Good. What did you do? I worked. Did you have any conversations? No. 
Well, you had 40 conversations. You just lied to your wife. But, you know, we don't want to get into that. We don't want to talk about it. But our, our wives do. They want to know what's going on. and That's just the way they're built, men. They're not doing that to harass you. That's just their, it's in their DNA. You know, that's what they want. Uh, if you're not going to frustrate your children, I'll not frustrate your wife. Communicate with your wife. But I would say most of the problems in marriages that I have dealt with in 43 years, the vast majority have been because the man was passive. He didn't see problems. He didn't see trouble coming. He was not the man of God in his home. Three things I want to say this morning. First of all, a faithful father serves God as a prophet. In 1 John chapter 2, John says, I have written to you fathers because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. And I want to say this up front. If you're a man and a husband and a father, you cannot do for your children and for your home what you need to do unless you know the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, some people sit back in our church and they, and, and they see people raising their hands and they hear people shout and they see people get happy and get blessed. And, and Paul, I, I'm going to say this. I, I don't think there is a better worship leader in the Southern Baptist Convention than Paula Cornegie. I mean that. We are blessed to have Paula here and, and she does a great job. And uh, by the way, some of you are not you're just not demonstrative. You just like to sit there and you enjoy the service and, and you hear people shout and you see people raise their hands and you see people get happy. Uh, don't let that bother you, okay? Because it's not going to bother us if you just sit there, all right? Uh, you're, you're free to just sit there and, and not get blessed. Man, when you get blessed, it's okay to let it out in this church. I want you to know how freeing that is, not just to the worship leader, but to the pastor. You know, I love it. And it didn't get this way overnight, folks. I want to promise you this. It wasn't that way in 1979. It wasn't. You know, if we'd have sung a chorus in 1979, they would have kicked us out of the Southern Baptist Convention. But now we've learned how to worship the Lord. And you're free to raise your hand or not raise your hand. You're free to clap or not to clap. You're free to stand in the awe of God or not stand in the awe of God. But I want to tell you this. In the home, the man needs to be a prophet. And he needs to know God. And so many men, well, I'm going to go to heaven. You know, there's a story in the book of Luke that if you're not absolutely sure you're going to heaven, you need to read. It's about a rich man who had a lot of money. And he had all the food he wanted to eat. And the only problem he had was there was an old beggar named Lazarus that came and laid at the door of his house. The only problem that old rich man had was every day he'd go out, he'd have to step over Lazarus to get out of his house. That was his problem. Lazarus died, and the Bible says he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man died, and it says, and was buried and listen to these next words. If you're a person here today, man, woman, boy, girl, and you're not saved, you listen to these words. The rich man died and was buried and in hell. Did you hear what I said? The rich man died and was buried and in hell. That's why you need to be saved. That rich man didn't go to hell because he was rich. 
He went to hell because he wasn't saved. Lazarus didn't go to heaven because he was poor. He went to heaven because he was saved. The greatest knowledge in the world is to know God personally. And if you don't know God personally today, if you aren't absolutely positively sure that when you walk out this door today, if you died today, you'll go to heaven, then you'd better get saved in this service. A few weeks ago, I told you this 98-year-old man sat right back there in the 8 o'clock service. Bitterly cold day, I, I commented on how, what a blessing it was to see him back there. A heavy coat, Paul, you remember that? He had a heavy coat on, was wrapped in a blanket. Man had to come to church in a wheelchair on a cold day. What a blessing that was. I pointed him out three hours later in a tra- tragic traffic accident. That 98-year-old man died. But the good thing is he went to heaven because he was saved. If you're in a traffic accident this afternoon, where would you go? Would you be like Lazarus and be comforted? Or would you be like the rich man, wake up in hell? A prophet knows God. Secondly, a prophet knows God's word. Now, I'm talking primarily to the men today, but I'm really talking to all Christians because this is our instruction book. In fact, somebody said that Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. That's what Bible spells out, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. You need to know this book. Now, just waving it around on Sunday and picking it up, bringing it to church and, and maybe... And you know the sad thing is, Brother Paul, I've never, I've never understood this, Paul. When I got saved, you know what became my favorite book? The Bible. You know what is my favorite book today? The Bible. You know what book teaches me what I need to do? The Bible. I love the Bible. Nobody's ever told me I needed to study the Bible or I ought to be in Sunday school. I love the Bible. I go on Sunday night and I'm taking Mary's Hebrews class. Uh, it's inductive study, and uh, now I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm auditing the class. You say, what does that mean? I'm not using the colors, okay? I, I'm not very artistic, and I'm not using the colors, uh, but I'm in the class, and, and I'm listening, and I'm participating. I even use the translation they use, which is, which is a great translation, not my favorite translation, but it's a great translation, the New American Standard. Why am I doing that? Because there's still things I need to know about the Bible. In the Birmingham News today, there's a great picture. There's a picture of the former president of Southeastern Bible College, 87 years old, sitting in a chair, reading his Bible, reading his pictures, and that's because he went to be with the Lord. What a great legacy he leaves, 87-year-old man, reading God's Word. Why? And he was a scholar. He was a lot better Bible scholar than I'll ever be. At 87, he's still reading the Word of God. He knows God. He knows God's Word. That's why if you know God's word, that's why you ought to be concerned about what's going on in America today. Somebody said, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Oh, yeah, he did. He said, in the beginning, the creator made them male and female. You say, well, that doesn't say anything about homosexuality. Yes, it does. It doesn't say he made them male and male. It doesn't say he made them female and female. It says in the beginning the creator made them male and female. That was God's plan. And anything else violates God's law. I don't care what the courts say. It's wrong. I don't hate anybody. I don't hate anybody. I've been accused of hating homosexuals. Nothing could be further from the truth. I have friends 
who are homosexual. I love them. I pray for them. I would not be ugly or unkind to them for anything. Do I agree with what they're doing? No, because I know what the Word of God has to say about it. If I'm going to be the prophet in my house, I've got to know God, I've got to know God's Word, and then I have to speak for God. I have to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what Joshua said. Moses had died and Joshua was taking over. And he got the people in the promised land. And when he got the people in the promised land, old Joshua had gotten old now. He knew he was going to die. And after all the people were settled there in the promised land, Joshua looked at him and he said, Hey, if you want to go back and serve idols like they did in Egypt or serve idols like they did here in Canaan before we got here, you go ahead and do that. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Now, I want to tell you this, Dad. I hope you've been a loving father where when your family hears you say, this is what we're going to do, they'll follow you. Not because they're afraid of you, but because they love and respect you. And they know what you stand for. We need men in their homes to be prophets and speak for God. And let me tell you what you need to teach your children. You need to teach your children to obey God and to obey people in authority. I got called out last Tuesday night. There had been a tragic accident down on Highway 119. A group of students from a high school in Montgomery had gone to the Space and Rocket Center. And coming back, they stopped for supper. And they pulled in and parked behind the McDonald's. And the students were told, and it wasn't a big bus. It was just a small group, about 15 or so. The students were told, you can go to KFC right here. You can go to McDonald's here. But whatever you do, don't cross that highway. Two boys were told not to do that. And two boys decided they were going to disobey the rules. And so they ran across Highway 119. Both of them were hit by a pickup truck. It was not the driver's fault. He was not speeding. Alcohol was not involved. It was a tragic accident. I was called down to minister to that mother. She had come up from Montgomery, and I went in the room, and I asked her to tell me something about her son. And she said he was just starting to work on his Eagle Scout badge. You know what a part of the Scout law says? A Scout is obedient. You see, he he may have known the Scout law, but he didn't obey it. Young people, listen to me. Listen to me. I'm not trying to scare you this morning. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm concerned when I see young people get their driver's license and they don't wear their seatbelts, when I see young people get their driver's license and they think, I know everybody else is not supposed to text, but I can handle it. I know how to use my iPhone. I know how to use my iPad. I don't, that, that law is for all the nerds, okay? And I'm not a nerd. I'm cool. I can text. No, you can't. And if you ride without your seatbelt and you're in an accident, I hope you survive. But you may not. Now let me say this to mamas and daddies. 
Don't you text and drive either. And don't you ride without a seatbelt. Why? It's the law. Well, I don't like that law. I didn't ask you if you liked it or not. It's the law. You know what our policy was with our kids when they started driving? The first time I caught them driving without a seatbelt, they didn't drive for a week. The second time I caught them with no seatbelt, it was two weeks. The third time, it was three weeks. The fourth time, and every time thereafter, it was a month. One time, Scotty couldn't drive for about six months. But you know what? He started wearing his seatbelt. You say, why did you teach him that? Because I love him. Because I love him. I love y'all. Don't do things that are going to harm you. God says there are things we should do and things we shouldn't do. Our job as a prophet in the home is to find out what God says to do and do those things and to find out what God says not to do and make sure we don't do those things. And by the way, Dad, how in the world can you teach your family the Bible if you don't know what the Bible says yourself? You know what happens a lot of times? People don't study the Bible and they think, well, you know, Brother Mike preaches the Bible. That's all I know. No, it's not. That'd be like me telling you, okay, you're going to eat for 30 minutes while I preach. And then I don't want you to eat again until next Sunday. And you come in and get to eat 30 minutes while I preach again. You'll starve your soul. And you'll starve your mind from knowing the word of God. Men, are you a prophet? Do you know God? Do you know God's word? And do you say, thus saith the Lord to your family? But then also a faithful father serves God as a priest. What does a priest do? He leads in worship. He leads in worship. You are to see that your family worships. You know what I don't hear anything about anymore, and I used to hear it all the time, Brother Paul? I used to hear about family altars. You remember that? Don't you, don't you think if there's ever been a time in America where we need family altars, it's now? Don't you think that, that, that we could have an impact on this country if we had God-fearing families having prayer in their home, Bible reading in their home, having worship in their home? Listen, God is honored when we worship him anywhere. I've worshiped God at the Grand Canyon. I've worshiped God driving down the road. I, I've worshiped God in this sanctuary. I've worshiped God in my study. You can worship God because God is everywhere and he deserves to be worshiped all the time. We need to lead in worship. Our families need to see us worshiping. And again, here's that old passive man. I don't know. I'm not going to... Brother Mike's meddling in my business. I'm going to meddle some more. Just, just wait. He leads in worship. Secondly, he leads in intercession. I had a deacon one time at the Mary Baptist Church. I could call his name, but I won't. Because this service is being taped. <laughs> Somebody in his family might see it and went out of contract on me. But he's in heaven now. And he was a great fellow. I loved him. He was kind of the head honcho deacon there. He'd been there forever. And uh, in fact, we were unloading the moving van to move into the pastorium at Millery. And uh, I'd heard that a, a young man had been critically burned in an accident 
down at one of the chemical factories in McIntosh, and he was in the uh, Mobile Infirmary burn unit, was not expected to live. And while we were unpacking our stuff, I, uh, the people that were unpacking the moving van, I asked Mary, I said, is it okay with you if I go down and make a hospital visit tonight? I really need to go see this fellow. He may not make it till the morning. And she said, no, go ahead. Well, well this man was the, he, he was, like I said, he was a deacon. He came over. I said, well, I'm fixing to leave and go to Mobile. He said, well, I'll go with you. And I said, well, come on. It was an hour and a half ride to Mobile. For an hour and a half, I learned the history of the Maori Baptist Church. I learned every mistake every pastor had ever made. When I got to Mobile Infirmary, I wanted to check into the psychiatric ward. <laughs> On the way back, I heard everything that he thought I needed to do as pastor. I was really hoping the movers would still be there and I could tell them put everything back in the truck. We're not going to stay. But you know what? That man became one of my biggest supporters. He had a heart for the church. But he had one hang-up. He said, preacher, don't ever ask me to pray in public. And I really think after all the talking he did, all the way to Mobile, about an hour and a half down there, hour and a half back, I really think the main reason he wanted to ride with me that night so he could drum into my head, preacher, don't ever call on me to pray in public. I pray privately, but I don't pray in public. Preacher, if he told me that once, he told me it about 15 times. And I'm thinking, you think I'm that stupid? And I thought, no, he just wants to make sure he gets his point across. And he did. The whole time I was there, I never called on him to pray. My last year at Millery, he had a grandson who was a preacher boy. He was a student at what was then Mobile College. I thought, well, we need to have him come preaching at his grandma and grandpa's home church. So I invited him to come preach one Sunday. While his granddaddy was so proud, he was sitting up there on that second row. And that young preacher boy got up, and he said, you know, it's such an honor to be here today. This has been my family's church for 80 years. And he said, but before I preach, I'm going to ask my grandfather to lead us in a word of prayer. I thought, I'm going to be called in the moving van again. And you know what that guy did? He got up and he prayed one of the most beautiful, moving, humble prayers I've ever heard. I mean, literally, it brought tears to my eyes because I knew that man did not want to pray. He didn't mind speaking in public, but he didn't want to pray in public. As soon as the service was over, his grandson and I were standing at the back door shaking hands with everybody. And now, I mean, he literally, he was on the second row, first row, second row up here. He literally came running down the aisle pulled me outside and he only weighed about 120 pounds he's a little skinny fella he literally pulled me outside and said preacher don't ever call on me to pray preacher don't ever call on me to pray I said I won't 
But I said, you did a good job. You know what prayer is? It's talking to God. That's Whether you're doing it publicly or privately, if you can talk, you can talk to God. Now, some people may talk to God in King James. That's all right. God understands King James. When I was in Israel, I heard people talking to God in Hebrew. I knew about two or three words. But they weren't talking to me. They were talking to God. Listen, and, and not just men. Some of you ladies, you, you may be a single lady. Well, guess what? You're the high priest in your house. You need to intercede for your house, for your family, for your friends, for your loved ones, for your church, for our nation, for this lost world. A priest leads in intercession. Thirdly, a priest leads in faith. One of my favorite stories is Moses goes up to the mountain and dies. And it still may happen. I've been here 35 years. Uh, I had planned to go 40, but that wasn't God's will. And, and I was kind of afraid, and it still could happen. I'm not worried about it if it happens. I mean, I'm prepared for that. But you remember what Joshua would say to the people of Israel after Moses went up to the mountain? <laughs> he would say, Moses, God's servant, is dead. I was kind of afraid somebody would have to get up here one Sunday and say, Brother Mike, God's servant is dead. We've got to get a new pastor. Now, that still could happen. I'm not worried about it. I told you I'm going to heaven. I'm not worried about it. But Moses had to go up on the top of that mountain, and he saw all those children of Israel. You know what? By the way, did you know why they call them the children of Israel? Would you like to know why? They weren't all children. You know why they're called the children of Israel? Because all the adult generation died in the wilderness because they didn't have faith to go into the promised land. That's why they're called the children of Israel. They weren't the ones that left Egypt. All those men that left Egypt didn't have faith to go in when they came to Kadesh Barnea the first time. If they'd have had the faith there, we wouldn't hear about the children of Israel. We'd hear about the parents of Israel. But all that generation, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, died off. The remarkable thing is everybody, all those men died off, but their shoes didn't wear out. Isn't that something? Here's old hard-headed man. He wouldn't go into the promised land. And God says, well, you're going to die in the wilderness. Uh, he may have lived 39 years and 364 days, and he died, but he's not going in the promised land. But when they bury him, his shoes are like new. Because God kept their shoes from wearing out, but God said, not one of you are going in the promised land. I hope you all understand that. God means what he says. But you remember what happened when they came to the Red Sea? Here comes Pharaoh's chariots. Here's the Red Sea. And by the way, don't listen to the History Channel. They'll tell you the Red Sea was about three inches deep. And that's how Moses and the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea. Well, you know, if that's so, how did Pharaoh and his army and all his chariots and horses drown in three inches of water? I can't figure that. There's a miracle there one way or another. Don't get your theology from the History Channel, okay? Bad theology. But Moses, with God's help, got them across. The Bible says they crossed on dry ground. 
Joshua comes to the River Jordan. They've come all across that wilderness of desert. And now they come to the River Jordan, and guess what? It's at flood stage. Now, those of us that were in Israel a few weeks ago, we could, Wes, we could throw a rock across the Jordan almost every place we saw it. But in those days, when the Jordan flooded, it was a mile wide, and it was deep and fast rushing. And so here comes Joshua. Moses is dead on the mountain. Joshua is at the Jordan River. And God says, okay, Joshua, here's how you're going to cross the Jordan River. You get the priests to take the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle, and I want those priests to step in that Jordan River that's flooding, and when the priests step in the Jordan River, the Jordan River will stop flowing. The water that's in there will run downstream, but the water that's upstream will stop. Now you say, preacher, that can't happen. Oh, it certainly can. If God does it, it can happen. You see, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, you can believe everything else. Because when they crossed through the Red Sea, there was water on this side and water on this side, walls of water because they came crashing in on Pharaoh and his chariots. But at the Jordan River, the water downstream ran on downstream, and it was just dammed up upstream. And you read that story, you know what happened? Those priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant on poles like it was supposed to be carried, those priests got down to that flooding river. Now, I want you to remember, there had to be one priest who had to put his foot in first. Now, can you imagine somebody going to the Mississippi River at flood stage and taking a chest that's made out of acacia wood and is covered in pure gold, weighs several hundred pounds, four, at least four priests are carrying it, maybe six, and the first priest has to step in that water. But when he does, you know what happened? The Jordan River flowed on downstream, but it stopped upstream. And those priests walk right out in the middle of Jordan. And they're standing there in the middle of what had been a mile-wide river with the water backing up on this side and the children of Israel passing by the Ark of the Covenant. And the Bible says it was on dry ground. You know what dry ground is? It's dry. It's not muddy, it's dry. Dust, dust is coming up from their sandals when it hits the bed of the Jordan River. And when the last one of the children of Israel crosses, those priests who stepped out in faith move on across the Jordan and they get down on the other side and they lay their burden down and all of a sudden that Jordan River goes back and it's a flood again. I want to tell you, men, we need to lead in faith. We need to lead in faith. Matt told you a while ago, I teased him at the 8 o'clock service because he went to Southwestern Seminary. Now, those of you who know our staff, Brother Don went to Southwestern Seminary. Uh, Barry went to Southern Seminary. Brother Paul and I went to New Orleans Seminary. And... So Don going to Southwestern and Matt went to Southwestern. I said, Matt, when you went to Southwestern Seminary, all those rich oil men out of Texas, y'all had plenty of money, didn't you? And he said, no. And I said, well, we didn't either at New Orleans. In fact, while we were in New Orleans, our bank account got down to 73 cents one time. Now, if that happened today, Regions Bank 
would come and take everything I have because they won't let me have a 73-cent balance. But in those days, they did. And one day, it was a long time till payday, and I had 73 cents in the bank. And I said, God, we have a need, and I don't know where it's going to come from, but you're our source, you're our supply. You say, didn't you have a mom and daddy? Yeah, I did. Didn't Mary have a mom and daddy? Yes, she did. But God was teaching us to live by faith. And I said, God, I'm just going to let you handle this however you choose to. I went to the post office that day, and I had a letter in the post office from a lady I had not heard from in two years. When I was the youth pastor at Dalrada Baptist Church in the summer of 1970, she had a room in her house that she called the preacher's room. And I got to stay in that widow lady's house in her preacher's room. And that widow lady had sent a check. Never had sent one before, never sent another one. But she sent us a check that day for $100. I want to tell you, $100 in that day would be like $1,000 today. I was so thankful. And I thank God because he put it on that lady's heart before I ever asked him for it. But he put it in my heart to ask him. You say, well, what if you hadn't asked him? You think you'd have still had that $100 check in your mailbox? I don't know. But I'll tell you this, I asked for it and I got it. Now, God doesn't always give me what I asked for. But I have to have faith that God's going to give me what I need. He's going to give me what I need in life. And he's going to give me what I need in death. Now, I got homework for you, okay? There's a little insert in your bulletin. Men, this is a test. This week is Valentine's Day. If you are smart, if you have any gray matter that is still alive in your head, you will take your wife out to eat one night this week and take her to a place she likes. Don't take her to a sports grill because you want wings, okay? Take her somewhere where they have frou-frou food where when you get up from the table, you're still hungry. Because that's what women like. Or if they're like my wife, take them where they can eat raw fish. While you are eating, I want you to ask her these 10 questions. Tom Elliff came up with this when he was a pastor. He'd been on the mission field. He and his wife came back. He wanted to make sure that he had a strong marriage. He asked his wife these 10 questions. Now, hang on, because I got, I got to sign up for you ladies, too. You're going to ask your wife, what could I do to make you feel more loved? What could I do to make you feel more respected? What could I do to make you feel more understood? What could I do to make you feel more secure? What could I do to make you feel more confident of our future direction? What attribute would you like to see me develop? What attribute would you like for me to help you develop? What achievement in my life would bring you the greatest joy? What would indicate to you that I really desire to be more Christ-like? And number 10, what mutual goal would you like to see us accomplish? I want you to ask your wife those questions. You will notice we left the back blank. We did that for a reason. Take a pen. 
You say, why are you being so specific? I'm talking to men, okay? I'm talking to men. We're all brain damaged. You need to do what your pastor says. You write the answers here. I'll remember it. You can't remember what you had for breakfast this morning. You write it down, what she says. All right, that's your assignment. Now here, you say, well, okay, preacher, if you tell us to, we're going to do that. Good, you'll be blessed if you do. And by the way, if you don't do it, may your toenails grow out like eagle claws. (laughs) And may the bird of paradise fly up your nose. May an elephant caress you with his toes if you don't do this. In the name of the Lord, may all that happen. (laughs) Now, okay, here's where it comes. All right. Then I want everyone. Young people, you say, we're not married. We're not even engaged yet. We're not even going steady. Good. Wait till you're old enough to go steady. 40, 50, go steady then. Especially for my grandkids. Okay. After you do that for your wife, I want you to ask these questions to the Lord. Why? What are we? I'm a Christian. This is a church. The church is the bride of Christ. You ask our bridegroom these questions. We used to sing that old song. When the bridegroom cometh, will your robes be white? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Will your soul be ready for those mansions bright? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? If you love Jesus, ask him these same questions and wait for his answer. Let's bow together for prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Question number one, do you know that you know that you know you're saved? Young people, children, teenagers, boys, girls, moms, dad, grandma, grandpa, do you know absolutely positively that you're saved? Don't be like the rich man who died and was buried and in hell, lifted up his eyes in torment. Make sure you're saved. If you're you're saved, are you growing as a disciple? Have you been baptized? Have you taken a public stand for Christ? If not, do that. Some of you may want to come to the altar You know marriages that are in trouble. It may be your marriage. It may be a friend. It may be a relative. It may be a child, grandchild. Best thing I know to do is pray, come to the altar, intercede for them. And then if you know there are things in your life that aren't right, you just may want to come to the altar and get right. We're going to have an invitation. We're going to ask you to come. Father, speak to our hearts. Lord, help us to love you. Help us to love our families. Help us to love this lost world for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.